Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning. So last week, we started a three-week mini-series on the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. So today is Jonah part two. Now, the main character in the book of Jonah is, of course, Jonah, Jonah's son of Amittai. And I'm just going to do a little bit of refreshing here before we get into this week's text. Uh, That name, Jonah, son of Amittai, it occurs one other time in Scripture, in the book of 2 Kings. And there, Jonah is described as a prophet who gives a wicked king good news, but not bad news. Later, another prophet, the prophet Amos, he's got a whole book of the Bible named after him, he also prophesied to King Jeroboam, this wicked king, same wicked king, and he gave him bad news. So from the start, Jonah, if he had a reputation at all before this book, he would have been thought of as that kind of prophet that tells the good news but not the bad news. Jonah would not be thought of as a top-tier prophet, you know. This is no Isaiah or Jeremiah uh, or Ezekiel. Jonah is a little bit suspicious as a prophet. And yet, even so, a message comes from God to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. In other words, go to a country that is filled with your enemies. Pagan people, violent people. Wicked people, go to them and tell them that the Lord has a problem with their wickedness. But Jonah, being the less than stellar prophet that he is, doesn't want to do that. And so Jonah goes as far in the opposite direction as he can from Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish, which is 3,000 miles to the west of Nineveh, or at least he tries to get to Tarshish. Tarshish would have been thought of as the edge of the world. That's as far as you can go before you go into the abyss of the Atlantic Ocean. But Jonah doesn't make it there because along the way, a storm descends on the ship. And the, uh, the pagan sailors who are with him, they recognize that the reason that this storm has come is because The Lord wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. And so they ask Jonah, they say, what should we do? And of course, this would be a good opportunity for Jonah to say, well, turn this ship around so that I can go to Nineveh as my Lord wants me to do. But what does Jonah say? Jonah says, no. He says, pick me up and throw me into the ocean. Jonah would rather die than do what God is calling him to do. So they pick Jonah up, they throw him into the ocean, the sea becomes calm, and Jonah sinks down into the depths. And that's where we left off last week. 
But of course, that's not the end of the story. We're just getting started. So if you want to follow along, open up to Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be attentive to your Spirit's voice this morning. We invite you to speak through the scriptures to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Great. All right. Thank you. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So this is definitely the most famous part of the Jonah story. If you ask the average person, who is Jonah in the Bible, they will say, he's that guy that got swallowed by a whale. Now, the fact that people tend to focus on the whale is something that, for a while, I've had mixed feelings about. Um, in my opinion, the, my favorite part of the story has to do with the vine. I wish people thought about the vine more. We haven't gotten to that yet. We'll get to that next week. Um, and, and part of the reason I say that, I mean, sure, the whale, it's amazing. It's, it's cool, right? But... Part of the reason is because I have seen that a lot of the time when people talk about Jonah, the conversations will, will sort of devolve into people talking about, well, is it scientifically possible for someone to get swallowed by a whale and survive for three days? And, um, and you, you will have, you know, believers, Christians saying, well, oh, yes, it's possible, Right. And then you'll have skeptical people saying, well, no, no, it's not possible. And, and round and round we go, right? When the focus is on the whale, sometimes, you know, we Christians feel led to say things like, well, did you hear about the guy a couple years ago? He was swallowed by a humpback. It was on the news and he survived. You know, or we might say, hey, have you heard about James Bartley? James Bartley, in 1891, he was on a whaling ship, 
and he got swallowed by a sperm whale. And for 15 hours, he was stuck in there, and then the rest of the whalers were able to cut him out, and he was alive. His skin was all bleached white from the digestive juices, but he, he recovered. He lived. So, mm, there you go. Right. Take that. Skeptic. Okay. So, there are a couple reasons why I don't think those are great things to say when we're talking about Jonah. And so, first of all, okay, I'm not trying to be a killjoy here. I am just trying to tell the truth. So, neither of those stories is really scientific proof that someone could survive in a whale for three days. So, the first one that I mentioned, that one is true. But it depends on your definition of swallowed. So, two years ago, summer of 2021, right off the coast of Provincetown, uh, Michael Packard ended up in the mouth of a humpback whale. Uh, in his estimation, he was in there for 30 to 40 seconds. He wriggled around. The whale said, oh, I don't like this, spat him out. Um, he had, you know, some minor surface injuries, but he recovered just fine. There he is in his hospital bed, giving a thumbs up. And, of course, the newspapers love to report this story, right? But there, there's no reason to think that he descended down into the stomach of the whale. And 30 to 40 seconds, hardly three days, right? Okay. So that's not really a, a great defense to the skeptic. And as for the story of James Bartley from 1891, that story has circulated for over a century since. But I regret to inform you that it doesn't really hold up to investigative scrutiny. Um, I know, I'm being a killjoy. I'm being the actually guy right now. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, the ship in that 1891 story is called the Star of the East, um, but the sh there was a ship that went by that name, the Star of the East, that I believe was in that general area. It was not a whaling ship. Uh, the crew manifest had nobody named James Bartley on it. James Bartley was never interviewed in this initial story, nor was he ever interviewed or pictured in this many decades since when this story we get passed around. And the wife of the captain of the Star of the East said, that never happened. That was just fabricated. So, at the very least, that story lacks the support we would want it to have if we were going to use it as proof. Right. So, that is the first reason that I want to offer for why arguments about whether people can survive in whales are a waste of time. It's probably an unusual uh, list to have in a sermon, but I think, it's, I think it's valuable to talk about this. So, number one, the commonly cited proofs don't, don't really hold up. Okay. Second reason. Second reason is because when we get hung up on them, we, we can kind of miss what the story is really trying to teach us. I mean, the part about the whale, that's important, right? But there's two more chapters after that that help to put the whole story in perspective. And some people who might be struggling, you know, with this whole idea of the whale, um, 
they might be more open to the power of the Jonah story if we start focusing a little bit more on the messages that Jonah is actually trying to teach us rather than the miracle of the whale. So that's one thing, okay? Then number three, third reason these arguments are a waste of time is because they assume that God can only do what is scientifically possible. Whoever said that, right? God, with God, all things are possible. You know? Just because someone can explain why a whale's stomach is uninhabitable doesn't mean that God can't make it habitable, right? So when we offer these sorts of proofs, when we are offering them, the assumption underneath it is that if it's scientifically impossible, then it can't be done by God. Not true. And then there's a fourth reason that I think these arguments are a bit of a waste of time. And this is one that I didn't notice until I was studying this week. I've read Jonah many times. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, but I didn't see this until now. Does the text even say that Jonah survived in the whale? We assume that, but I don't know if we should. In the prayer that Jonah prays, he says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. The realm of the dead there, the Hebrew word for that is Sheol. And it is used over and over throughout the Old Testament as the place where the dead go. Right? Now, of course, this could be poetic. Jonah could be poetically expressing that it is like he is dead because he is down deep in the ocean and inside a whale. But it's also possible that Sheol here means what it usually means, which is that Jonah is dead. And this whale is an abode of death. And it's not preserving his life, but carrying his body to where it's supposed to go for when God revives him. So, if that is the case, the story of Jonah is not a story about a man who su survives in a whale because it's scientifically possible. And it's not a story about a man who survives in a whale because God miraculously makes whales habitable. It is a story about a man who dies and comes back to life. And the point is that God can raise the dead. And part of the reason that I lean toward that interpretation is because of something Jesus said. Now, I said that I prefer not to talk about the whale that much. Well, Jesus has challenged me on that because when Jesus talked about the book of Jonah, he talked about the whale. Matthew 13, 38 through 40, or sorry, Matthew 12. I think I wrote that wrong. Um, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they come and they say, give us a sign that you're who you say you are. 
Prove it to us. And Jesus says, nah. And the reason he says that, he, he tells us, right? He says, because it is wicked people who are asking him for a sign. If you do a sign for wicked people, it's not going to persuade them. And, and part of the proof of that is that right before this, Jesus heals a man who is demon-possessed. He casts the demon out. Uh, the man is unable to, to speak, and suddenly he is able to speak. I think he's also deaf, and then he's able to hear. And, and the Pharisees see this happen. What do they say? Do they say, oh, what a glorious sign. You must be the Messiah. No. They say, uh, it's by the power of the devil that you're casting out demons. And now they want a sign. Right? So Jesus is like, no. No more signs for you. But he says, there will be a sign that's coming that you will still be able to be witness to. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign that will be available to you is what he calls the sign of Jonah. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, just as Jonah went down to Sheol and yet was vomited up out of it, so I will descend into death and yet rise again. And that will be the sign. So when Jesus reads the book of Jonah and he gets to the part about the whale, he sees God raising the dead. And he sees in that story what we might call a prefigurement of his cross and his resurrection. And I want to stick with that for a little while this morning. Um, when you came here to hear a sermon about Jonah, you might not have expected that we're going to go in the direction we're going to go. We're going get, to get more to the story in Jonah next week. But I want to hang out on this idea a little bit. I want us to talk about, um, well, I'm talking at you. You're not talking back at me. But I want us to appreciate the way that Jesus read the Old Testament. Jesus said that all of the Old Testament pointed to him. When we read the Old Testament the way that Jesus read it, okay, we don't just see principles for how to live. We do see that, right? But that's not all we see. Uh, and we don't just see stories about history, although we do see that as well. What we should see are texts that are in some way pointing us to Jesus. That could be by predicting him. It could be by prefiguring him. Uh, it could be by foreshadowing him. Or it could be by revealing our need for him. The way Jesus interprets the Old Testament in, should involve asking, how does this text find fulfillment in Jesus? And this way of reading the Old Testament is sometimes called the Emmaus way of reading scripture. You might remember that the road to Emmaus was the road that uh, some travelers were on shortly after Jesus had been resurrected. They didn't know 
that Jesus had been resurrected. But they were walking on uh, the Emmaus Road, and they were talking uh, about Jesus. And Jesus himself showed up. Now, they didn't recognize that it was Jesus, but Jesus was walking with them. And he said, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, talking about Jesus. Haven't you heard? He was killed. And we all thought that he was the Messiah, and we're really disappointed. And then Jesus said, oh, you guys, you've missed it. Don't you understand that the scriptures say that the Messiah must suffer before entering into glory? And then it says this. It says that Jesus basically gave them a little bit of a, um, oh, sorry, did I miss it? Basically, it says that Jesus gave them a seminar on how to read scripture. Uh, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, so when you read the Old Testament, do you read it the way Jesus read it? That's the question I want us to reflect on today. Do you read it in the Emmaus way? If we want to follow Christ, we should read it in the Emmaus way. And here's what I want us to notice about the Emmaus way. Okay? The Emmaus way of reading scripture is not concerned only with figuring out the human author's intent. For example, I highly doubt that the writer of Jonah thought, as he wrote about Jonah being swallowed by the whale and then spit up. I highly doubt that he thought, this is prefiguring the Messiah's death and resurrection. Right? But Jesus still sees in that story something that foreshadows his death and resurrection. Why does Jesus do that? Because Jesus doesn't think that humans are the only ones involved in the generation of scripture, right? The spirit of God is involved as well. So as we read scripture, we can see that it bears the fingerprints of their human authors, but also of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's neat about that. The spirit of God can intend a meaning that the human author is not aware of, like Jonah and the whale. The author of Jonah may not have intended to write about Jesus, but the Holy Spirit working through him did. So when we read the Old Testament, the Emmaus way, the way that Jesus teaches us to read it, we don't just consider the literal meaning of the text, although that does matter, right? And we don't just consider the human author's intended meaning, although that matters as well but we are also open to the meaning that the Holy Spirit intends that points us to Jesus. There's a theologian that I appreciate named uh, Chris E.W. Green, and he wrote a poem called Jesus is the New that I really appreciate. And I think it does a beautiful job of expressing what it's like to read the Old Testament in the Emmaus way. 
And it's a long poem, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read a little bit to, to you to give you an idea. Okay? Jesus is the better able, sacrificed, not sacrificing, his blood quietly renewing the face of the whole earth. Jesus is the better Noah, who does not save himself alone or his own, but goes down with the wicked into the heart of the deepest depths. Jesus is the new Melchizedek, who offers himself as bread and wine, and in that gift makes us God's blessing, God's breath. Jesus is the new Moses, journeying back down into bondage to save all who felt they could not follow, all who felt they had to stay. Jesus is the better Joshua, conquering the powers arrayed against us by making us lay down our swords. Jesus is the new and better Sabbath, given that we might forget our works for just a moment, living life just as God loves to live it. Jesus is the new and better high priest, who touching death is not defiled, but sanctifies the dead. Jesus is the better atonement, the once-for-all end of sacrifice, making the giving and receiving of gifts possible at last. Jesus is the better scapegoat, driven out into the wilderness, bearing out our wrongs deep into the forgetfulness of God. Most of those could probably be a sermon in, in themselves, right? Those are deep. And I realize that uh, some of the references there, uh, you, some of you might not be familiar with. That's okay. But I, I'm just trying to, to give you an idea of what it looks like to read Scripture in that Emmaus way, in that way where we see Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Uh, there's a place in the New Testament where it says that in Jesus all things hold together. And that's true of the scriptures, too. If we want to see them as a cohesive whole, we have to put Jesus at the center. Otherwise, they, they don't hold together. They are fulfilled in him. So, as we read the Old Testament, don't only think about the literal meaning. Don't only think about what the human authors intended, but the meaning that the Spirit intended that points us to Jesus by foreshadowing him, predicting him, prefiguring him, or revealing our deep need for him. All right, so uh, let's get back to Jonah before we finish up here. Jonah and the whale. The story of Jonah and the whale shows us that God can raise the dead. That what seems impossible is possible. And I just think some of us really need to hear that. That if we are spiritually dead, God can raise us up out of that. That if our physical bodies are breaking down, that one day they can be raised to life again. Right? That despite appearances, despite what reason might tell us, God can raise the dead. My favorite stories, the stories that are always the most fascinating to me, are the ones where all hope seems lost, and yet, it's not. 
And that was certainly the case for Jonah. Listen to what he says again. I like this part. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. The earth beneath barred me in forever. In those days, they imagined the realm of the dead as being beneath the earth. So Jonah is saying, I went down to the realm of the dead and I found forever bars, everlasting bars. The word there that's translated as forever, it's the same word that gets translated as eternal. Eternal bars in the realm of the dead. And yet, he escaped. How? Because God is stronger than those eternal bars. God can raise the dead. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jonah and the whale is a picture of what Paul says there for us. And I want us to notice also, let's, let's just be honest here, that Jonah has very little to do with his being raised, right? He certainly had something to do with him dying, but not so much with him being raised, right? Why has he gone down to the realm of the dead? Because he's run from God, right? Because he'd rather die than do what God told him to do and go to Nineveh. Because he said, throw me. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I would rather drown. All he really brings to this situation is his disobedience and then a cry for help. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Sometimes we come to a place in our lives where the only thing that we can really offer God is a humble cry for help. And if you're in that place today, I just want you to hear, that's enough. That's enough. That is enough for God to raise the dead. But I know even that can be hard for some of us. When I was in campus ministry, I used to attend this group called the Freethinkers Club. It was mostly atheists and agnostics. And I was the token Christian there to keep the conversations going. So it was more than just everybody agreeing with each other, you know. And, um, and there was one guy who was a regular there, and one day he just said, what does your God want from me? What, uh, what does he want me to do? And I'm not saying I answered it the best possible way, but I remember that I just said, I think, I think he wants you to ask him for help. And, uh, and he said, I can't do that. I'm too proud. But see, that's choosing the way of death, right? 
to sink deeper down into the realm of the dead. Down below those eternal bars. So don't be too proud. You can't raise the dead. But God can raise the dead. So call on him. Amen? Lord, if any of us are in that place where we feel like we are just sinking down into those dark depths, uh, that we are trapped and can't get out, um, maybe, we're, maybe we're depressed, maybe we're addicted, maybe we're grieving, uh, maybe we are literally um, looking at a fatal diagnosis. Uh, God, I, I pray that this morning you would fill us with hope that you would remind us that you are the one who can raise the dead, who raised Jesus to life, and in him we can have confidence that this life is not all there is, that, that death itself becomes a, a path to eternal life, um, that there is hope in the bleakest of circumstances, uh, that, that you, can t you can turn things around, that as long as we are breathing, there is a chance for that if we would just humble ourselves and call out. Help us, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.